Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This is uh, the account of the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit, who had been promised, descends on the twelve, on those gathered around them in the upper room, and when the Spirit indwells them, they begin to speak in languages they had never learned before. And to the crowd gathered at Pentecost, people who'd come from, from all parts of the world, those people hear their native languages, their mother tongue being spoken by these unlearned Galileans. Imagine if you had been there, if you could go back in a time machine and, and be present at that Pentecost and witness the event as the mighty works of God are being proclaimed by this group of believers. And they're being proclaimed not just in Aramaic, not just in Koine Greek, which are like the common languages that everyone can more or less get by in, but they're being proclaimed in the languages spoken by all the people gathered there. And as you, a time traveler from the 21st century, are listening to this, suddenly you hear words that you recognize being spoken in your language. I mean, imagine that. People around you might hear that, that unknown tongue and say, listen to that gibberish. They, they must be drunk. And you would turn to them and say, no, that's not drunken babbling. That's the English language. Like, I know that. I recognize that. That's the gospel speaking to me in my own language. Be a remarkable thing to witness. And that's what happens on the day of Pentecost. That's what happens. As we approach it, though, there are a couple of challenges that we have. Uh, one of these challenges is common to any kind of story like this in Scripture. Anytime you see some miraculous event, some, some amazing sign, it's common, it's natural, it's maybe unavoidable to focus more on that sign than on what it actually signifies. And the sign is meant to represent something. It's meant to, to point to some deeper truth, but when you see a marvelous sign like this, you just focus on that. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is why this sign? Why at Pentecost does the gift of the Holy Spirit express itself specifically in this gift of language, this ability to speak languages never learned before? Why is that the sign of the Holy Spirit's indwelling? Second, there's a historical obstacle for us. Living as we do in the 21st century, we live after the, the Wesleyan perfectionist movement and, and later Pentecostalism has popularized this idea of speaking in tongues as a necessity for believers. And so it's hard to read this passage and not have our focus immediately go to that debate, to that question, and start asking ourselves, what is speaking in tongues? And, and more importantly, should we be doing it? How can we claim to have the Holy Spirit if we're not speaking in tongues? Isn't that part of it? Is there something wrong with our faith if we don't? So we're going to take on both of those questions this morning. And we're going to do it from the standpoint of the kingdom. The standpoint of the kingdom. In Acts chapter 1, we saw that the kingdom of God is a spiritual 
kingdom, with Christ as its king. That Christ has given that kingdom a government, has called officers to serve him. And now in Acts chapter 2, we will hear the language of the kingdom. So let's look at this passage, the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. They're filled with new wine. I want to start with the second question first, take the, the harder thing, the more contemporary debate. How can we say we have the Holy Spirit if we don't speak in tongues? How can we claim to have the gift of the Holy Spirit if we don't do what the people in the book of Acts did when they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. It seems like an obvious indicator that something must be wrong. To answer the question, we have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible actually teach us about this phenomena of speaking in tongues? It may surprise you to know that speaking in tongues is mentioned three times in this chapter, Acts 2, once in Acts 10, and then once in Acts 19, and for the book of Acts, that's it. That's the only time that this is mentioned, and the only one of those mentions that describes what it's like speaking in tongues is the one that we've just read in Acts chapter 2. That's all we get. In the book of Acts, when speaking in tongues is mentioned, there's a logic to the way that it's mentioned. It corresponds to the movement's or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in different people groups. So we talked earlier in this series about the way that in the book of Acts you see the gospel spread in different regions, so through Jerusalem, through Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Well, you see a similar movement happening through people groups as well. You see the Holy Spirit descend upon the Jews in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit descends upon the Samaritans, people of Samaria, in Acts chapter 8, although there there's no mention of speaking in tongues. Uh, I think you can infer that it could have happened in that moment. Later in Acts 10, we see the Spirit descending on God-fearing Gentiles. 
when Peter brings the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And then finally, a group of Ephesians in Acts chapter 19, after the laying on of hands, speak in tongues. And that's interesting because chronologically, that event in Acts 19 happens at the time that Paul is writing his first epistle to the Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians, which is the other place in the New Testament where you could go to find teaching on speaking in tongues. And that's it. 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, and these are written approximately at the time when you have this last mention of this gift of tongues in the book of Acts. Chronologically, they correspond. As I said, only Acts 2 actually describes what speaking in tongues is like, and when it describes it, as you've heard, it clearly describes a language gift, a language phenomena, that these Galileans are speaking languages that they've never learned. And the way that we know they've never learned them is they're Galileans. You guys, most of you, uh, enjoy an advantage over me. I come from the south on the Gulf Coast, and there's an assumption that people make about us Southerners that, that we don't have much book learning. And if you hear Southerners talking in, in our native dialect, you just assume these people, they don't know much. And if we suddenly started speaking in foreign languages, you'd be astonished. Don't feel too good about yourself, though, because if we were all to go to Europe and any of us spoke in anything other than English, everybody around us would be astonished that these Americans, who are basically the Galileans of the world, have managed somehow to speak a foreign language. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. How could they do such a thing? So you see, something astonishing is happening, and it leaves people perplexed and wondering. They understand this is not normal. This shouldn't be happening, but there's comprehension taking place. Not everybody understands what's being said. There are some people who hear, and it sounds to them like, like gibberish, the way it does when people speak languages that you don't know. Right? You hear a foreign language spoken, especially if it's far enough away from English that there aren't any cognates or similar sounds, you're like, I, I don't know what that is. It, it, it's all Greek to me. But, but to someone who knows the language, it makes sense. It's intelligible. And that's what you see happening at Pentecost. Now, when you look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul does not describe the gift of tongues, but he does give teaching about the gift of tongues, particularly its abuses, like he's trying to curb some excesses and some abuses. And so there are people who look at the way Paul talks about it, and they draw some inferences from that. And those inferences suggest to them that there must actually be two different gifts of tongues in the Bible. One of those gifts is what you see happening at Pentecost, the thing that's clearly described, the language gift. But there's this second gift that's more of a, it's like an ecstatic speech. You might think of it as like a prayer language. So it's not corresponding to a human language. It's something only God can comprehend. So in 1 Corinthians 13.1, Paul begins that chapter on love by saying, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, and you hear that reference of men and of angels. Now, Paul could be using hyperbole there. Like he could be saying, 
in order to show how essential love is, that no matter what language you speak, whatever skill you possess, the, the language of men or even of angels could just be hyperbole. Or, or Paul could be alluding to this, this secret heavenly language that only those gifted by the Holy Spirit have the ability to speak or comprehend. In chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 2, Paul says, One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, that could mean that if you're at a worship service in Corinth, which, unlike Pentecost, has not gathered together a diaspora of people speaking many different languages, if you then speak one of those languages to that group of Greek speakers, they're not going to know what you're talking about. Only God will understand. That could be the point that he's making. Or he could mean that if you have this gift of tongues, you're speaking in this heavenly language that, that men cannot comprehend and only God can comprehend. You're speaking to God rather than men. And people have taken this to mean either one of those. And there are people that, that you know and respect and that I know and respect who've taken both sides of that case. And uh, I think you have to... Uh, grant the benefit of the doubt that, that everyone involved in a debate like this is trying to uh, do their best to interpret Scripture rightly. So the question you have to ask yourself is, how do we do that? I mean, how do we interpret Scripture rightly? Uh, what principle can guide us? This is where the Westminster Confession can be helpful. In the first chapter on the doctrine of Scripture in section 9, you read, that the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So you get the idea. They're saying that, that the Bible is one, that all these different authors over all these different eras because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have, have written a literature, a book that is internally consistent. So that if you find in one part of the Bible references that are not clear, the way to interpret that is to go to places that are more clear. So if, like me, you've read 1 Corinthians and sometimes puzzled over what Paul can be talking about when he describes the, the excesses and the problems with speaking in tongues in the church in Corinth, you can go to places in Scripture that are clearer to understand the phenomena that he's describing. And if you're looking for a clearer explanation, there's just the one. There's only one place in the Bible that gives us a description of speaking in tongues, and that's our passage in Acts chapter 2. Now, if it's possible to take this language gift described in Acts 2 and understand how it can fit with the way that Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, then I would argue that the simplest way of interpreting Paul's words is to say that when he talks about speaking in tongues, He's talking about the same gift that you see in the book of Acts, that it works the same or in a similar way 
Maybe there are, are special things about Pentecost, and it's never that great again, but you're talking about the same kind of gift. I'm not saying that there are no difficulties trying to reconcile Paul's words with what we see in Acts. What I am saying is I think that in the face of those difficulties, the safest thing to do is to err on the side of Scripture's clear teaching. In other words, not to infer multiple gifts of tongues, but to try to see the one gift being spoken of in both places. So that would be my suggestion, my argument, that you can reconcile Paul's words in 1 Corinthians with the description that we've just read in Acts chapter 2. So the question is, shouldn't we be speaking in tongues now? Shouldn't we be doing this now? Well, you probably know this already, but, but in case you don't, modern tongues speakers do not pursue the gift of tongues as described in Acts chapter 2. So what happens when you go to a, a meeting somewhere and people are speaking in tongues, you're not going to hear them speaking in languages that if you were really good in Spanish class, you will recognize as Spanish or German or, or Ukrainian or what have you. That's more the, the ecstatic speech prayer language interpretation that I mentioned earlier. So they're trying to do something different. It, it's not the Acts chapter 2 thing, and you may hear that and think, well, but at least they're trying to do something. I mean, that, that's, that's something, so maybe that's, that's uh, worth doing. They're not just ignoring the gift. They're trying to make something of that. So I mentioned that there are a few instances in Acts and then in 1 Corinthians that mention speaking in tongues. There's actually one other one that uh, I didn't mention, and it comes from Jesus himself. Jesus himself, at the end of Mark's gospel, makes reference to this. This is uh, Mark's version of what we call, when we see it in Matthew, the Great Commission. So in Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 14, hear these words. After he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. He said to them, go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. You hear Jesus' words, and again, you could read them one of two ways. Jesus could be describing the new normal for the kingdom. This is just the way it's going to be from now on. God's people will be demon-exercising, tongue-speaking, snake-handling, poison-drinking healers. And anyone who doesn't fit that description isn't one of God's people. That's one possibility. But Jesus is describing the way it's going to be, and if it's not that way, we're just not those people. There's another possibility, though that Jesus is describing the apostolic era and that the description that he gives is actually borne out in the book of Acts. When you read Jesus' words, you can put little uh, superscript references above each of those phrases referring to historical events that will, in fact, be narrated in the book of Acts. 
People will be healed. Poison will be drunk. Snakes will bite and not kill. All these things are going to happen in the apostolic era. Demons will be exercised. It will come to pass. Maybe what Jesus is talking about is a special era of signs that will usher in this new reality. And there's a biblical precedent for interpreting it that way, interpreting the apostolic era as a special age of signs. We tend to think of the whole Bible as just full of random miracles. If you read the Bible, you open up at random at any place, you're likely to see some miraculous event taking place. But in fact, that's not the way it works. Miracles are the exception, not the norm, and they tend to be clustered around certain figures, certain ages. So these eras of signs and wonders are the days of Moses and the days of Elijah, primarily, and now the days of Jesus and the apostles. Those two main eras of signs and wonders in the Old Testament now are complemented and completed by an era of signs at the beginning of the New. In the Pentecost sermon, as we're going to see, Peter actually makes a kind of connection like this where he sees what's happening now at Pentecost as a fulfillment of this age of signs and wonders that the prophet Joel prophesies. Even Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 hints at the passing away of this era when he says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. The end of the apostolic age meant the end of a lot of things. One of those things is commonly acknowledged among Orthodox Christians. There's something special about that period, and it's this. No matter where you go, where the name of Christ is proclaimed or people hold to the historic Christian faith, nobody believes that the Holy Spirit is still adding new books to the Bible. Right? That canon is closed that apostolic era produced this book, and then it stopped. Even though there's nowhere in the New Testament where you can go and see, okay, everybody, from now on, just so you know, it's done. And nothing that comes after this is, is officially inspired anymore. That's not in here. And yet we acknowledge the way that the Spirit works, and we acknowledge in the history that that's what happened, that something that was being done is no longer being done. But that wasn't the only thing. Not only that, that work of inspiration that the Spirit was doing in that period, but a lot of other things are no longer taking place any longer. Right? Those men went around regularly casting out demons, healing the sick, doing things like that. And I know that there are still people today who say, yeah, that's still happening. It's still happening. But you know what? It's happening at conference centers, not at hospitals. People who have the gift of healing, so-called, don't take it to the hospital and heal people on their deathbeds. They, they go to, to you know, stadiums and heal people who come up on stage, and that's not what the apostles were doing. There was a reason why this was an age like no other, accompanied with signs like no other, because it was meant to signify a message the end of that era was not a loss. It was a completion because that era was meant to give us God's word and to testify with authority to the apostles 
who brought it into being. You say, well, I still think these gifts are for today. That's fine. That's fine. I'm not trying to persuade you, and I realize it would take longer than this to do that. What I am trying to do is is explain why, until relatively recently, Christians were not worried that they weren't really Christians because they weren't doing these things. I just want you to understand why the Reformation wasn't concerned, that it wasn't really a, a Christian Reformation because they weren't handling snakes, drinking poison without dying, healing the sick and speaking in tongues. Why weren't they anxious? Why didn't they worry that they weren't the real deal, that they didn't really have the Spirit? Because they understood that those things had been part of an exceptional era and that the Spirit wasn't working that way in them. Although the Spirit was certainly working and is working and still works for us now, they understood that that era had been completed And that's why it's okay now that nobody speaks in tongues the way they spoke at Pentecost. Nobody does it now because they weren't meant to do it, because there was a reason behind it. So what does the sign of language signify for the kingdom of God? Like, why was this event so exceptional? Why was it this gift of language that was so important Well, to understand why they spoke in tongues, you have to remember that there's an earlier tongue described in our text. The speaking in tongues comes after the tongues of flame. The first tongue described is the tongue of flame. There were tongues as of fire resting upon each of them. And before that, there was a sound from heaven, like a mighty rushing wind. Note, if you read carefully, there wasn't a wind. And there wasn't fire. There was a sign that was like fire. And there was a sound that was like wind. But these things were greater. They were different than those things. Fire and wind are how you could describe them. It was what they were like. John the Baptist, the beginning of Matthew's gospel, actually said to people when he was talking about his unworthiness, his unworthiness in comparison to Jesus. He said about Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And now in Acts 2, it's done. You see it happening. There's this this tongue as of fire resting upon each of them. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3 that the Holy Spirit is like wind. He says the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So when the Spirit descends, there's this sound like wind, but it's not this mysterious breeze. It's, it's this mighty rushing wind as the Spirit enters. And you have this sign of flame. What does it mean? Why flame? Why did it seem as if Tongues of flame rested upon the heads of each one of them. In Exodus 3, when God reveals himself to Moses, he reveals his covenant name to Moses, how does he signify his presence? Through a burning bush. A bush that is on fire but is not consumed by the flame. Signifies the presence of God. And now, as the Holy Spirit descends on the people of God and God indwells his people as he promised, they see the sign as a fire upon them, as if they all were burning bushes, signifying 
God in us, indwelling us by the power of his Spirit. The sign means the Holy Spirit has come. The Holy Spirit has filled this place, indwells us. The presence of God is with his people, and that changes the language of the kingdom. It changes the language of the kingdom. Now, why this happened on Pentecost is interesting. Augustine speculates. He says, if you notice, when Moses received the law, he received it 50 days after Passover. And now when the Holy Spirit descends, it descends 50 days after Passover. And so Augustine sees this correspondence in the giving of the law under Moses and the giving of the Holy Spirit under Jesus. But there's actually another correspondence. If you go back before Exodus to Genesis, there's another should-be-obvious correspondence. It's in Genesis 11, where the problem that is corrected at Pentecost, actually originates. In Genesis 11, we're told that the peoples of the earth came together in unity. They came together of one accord to make a name for themselves, to build this great tower. And God, seeing their pride, comes down and throws them into confusion, specifically scattering them and confusing their language. That's what happens in Genesis 11. All of those people who were subject to that curse at Babel, they were all under the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God had made after the flood. But in Genesis 12, the way God works changes. He goes from dealing with all humanity to dealing with a particular people. He calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He gives his covenant to Abraham and to the descendants of Abraham, to his chosen people. So that even to the day of Pentecost, those chosen people had the expectation that Jesus had come for them. He was their Messiah and theirs alone. And now at Pentecost, the confusion of Babel is momentarily reversed. And suddenly the mighty works of God are being proclaimed, not just in the language of the Jews, but in the language of the peoples of the earth. In all of the languages... God's mighty works are being proclaimed, giving us a hint, a glimpse of what Paul will refer to as the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel is that God's chosen people are not just Jews, but Gentiles too. That Gentiles are included in God's gracious covenant. Pentecost is a glimpse of that reversal, that permanent reversal of the confusion of Babel that is still to come. Where there is confusion and scattering, there will be understanding and unity. The Spirit descends on the Jews, but then on the Samaritans and on the God-fearing Gentile converts and then on the Gentiles as a whole. And every time we get this glimpse, we get this glimpse as the gospel is proclaimed in the languages of the earth, that that disunity, that confusion, that scattering will come to an end. So you could say this gift of of language is a really useful thing to have if you're trying to to take this Christianity thing and make it an international movement. It's good to have people who can speak in the language of all these different groups. And so maybe the reason why the Spirit does this is so that the apostles can basically get a head start in doing international ministry. The thing is, though, 
If you could speak some Koine Greek, you could get by pretty much anywhere in the Roman Empire. You didn't need some miraculous enabling in order to spread this message. In fact, New Testament scholars will often point to the fact that the Hellenization of the Mediterranean world is one of these providential factors that allows Christianity to spread the way that it does because everybody has a lingua franca. Everybody has a language in common. So you don't actually need a spiritual gift in order to accomplish this. So underneath the practicality, maybe there's something deeper. Calvin, in his commentary on Acts 2, sees a second purpose in tongues. And this helps understand what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. He sees their value as worship. Their value not just for proclamation, but for worship. Now, certainly, they would have made an impression on the worshipers. I think the shock of Pentecost wasn't just that the gospel was being uh, spoken by all these people, and, and thanks to the gift, you could understand what was being said. I think the shock of Pentecost was that the gospel was speaking in your language. That's a little bit different. God was speaking to you in your language, in your mother tongue, not through translation, but directly to you. And this brings glory to God. Paul, in Philippians 2, talks about the way in which, in the future, every knee will bow to Christ, this glorious passage. And with the glory of Christ, after all the humiliation that he suffered, he will be exalted, and every knee will bow, and what? Every tongue confess. Every tongue confess. It's interesting to see that, that at the beginning, during the apostolic era, something like that, something that hinted at that was happening. Every tongue was confessing. The mighty works of God were being proclaimed in every tongue as if hinting at that future fulfillment that is to come. The language of the kingdom glorifies the king. First and foremost, the language of the kingdom glorifies the king, and that's what the gift was for. It reversed the confusion. It ended the separation. For that moment, there was unity in this, this diaspora crowd as the word was going out to everyone. In the language that they understood, the barriers between them disappeared and dissolved, and they were a people together. Unity. They weren't just united, though. They were united in glorifying God, united in glorifying the king. And the great irony of the sin of Corinth is that this gift that was given to unite the people of God from every tribe and nation and to focus them all on glorifying the king was now being used to distinguish between one another. That a gift given by God was used to puff up the pride of an individual and allow him to see himself as better than those around him. That's the irony. It was given to draw them together, and they used it to elevate themselves above one another. And there are some people who think that that abuse is what hastened the end of the gift. I, I don't think that. I think the end was always coming once the signs had done their job. But I do think there's a lesson in, in that, in, in the abuse of the Corinthians and what we can learn from it. The kingdom is meant to be united. 
It's meant to be like-minded. It's meant to be of one accord. Those disciples gathered in the upper room were of one accord, and the Spirit descended, and, and they brought the people at Pentecost, many of those people, into that accord with them. This is what the kingdom is meant to be. We may speak different languages, but the kingdom speaks the same language in all of us. The kingdom speaks the same language in all of us. The Spirit works in us to proclaim and to glorify God. And whatever gifts God gives us are not given to distinguish us from one another. If he gives us gifts, he gives them to us so that we can bring each other along. We can build each other up. We can be united to one another. And above all, he gives us gifts so that we can glorify him. Any crown you're given in this life, you have been given so that you can set it at his feet. God gives gifts so that we have something to give. It's not a surprise that we turned this great spectacle of glory into a site of conflict. You look around, there are people who say, ah, you don't speak in tongues, you're not as good as me. And then somebody like me comes along and says, ah, what you're speaking is not actually tongues. You're not as good as me. And we lord it over one another. Right? We feel superior to one another. And in our own way, we elevate ourselves through this gift or not gift so that we can feel superior to others who proclaim the name of Christ. It's not a surprise. That doesn't mean it's a good thing doesn't mean it's a good thing. I mean, on the one hand, I hope that I've given you enough reason to understand why I think the way the Reformation deals with these passages is the right way, and that we can understand the gift as Paul describes it in light of the gift as Luke describes it. And further, I think, I hope at least, that you can understand why it's a grievance to us when men's consciences are bound by speculation on passages like this. On the other hand, though, I hope that you long with me for the spirit of Pentecost. I hope that you long with all of us for the spirit of unity, for the spirit of like-mindedness and one accord in Christ. I hope that you long together as a people, for the power of the Holy Spirit, for the reality that was signified by those signs and the apostolic era. I hope you long for those things so that we can confess with one accord that the work of salvation in Christ knows no boundaries. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.